Hey. Hey. Am I the first one in? Yeah. Bad. Beep. The lighting looks bad here. Is that better? It's less orange now. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. I thought about coming to church too. Yeah, I just, you know, with at home, there's just so much like dogs barking and <laughs> it's just safer for me to come here. How was the doctor? Uh, it was good. It was just a normal, like, new doctor, go get the blood work done, that kind of stuff, get a flu shot. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got to do that. Ugh. You go down to Chinatown, get your hair cut today? Yeah. 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 Yep. Jang's? <laughs> morning. Oh, Kevin's? Kevin's? Kevin's. Kevin's. Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, right? 
It's been months. I usually go to Wang, but he wasn't yeah. there today. That's my guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't you have to call, make an appointment? I just walk in, man. Oh. Yeah. Um, do we have a head count, Ryan? Uh, last I checked, it was like 109. Okay. A few more. Um, In that shared doc I, where we put the questions, I also put the schedule just so that we have it in front of us. Yeah, well. that's helpful. That's helpful. Did he respond to you at all about the fact that we couldn't change things? Yeah. <laughs> He's all right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm just wondering how the questions will be after like it's on the Trinity basically. Yeah. Yeah. We may as the co presenters, panelists, we may have to jump in and, and come up with some questions to get the ball rolling, especially. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking maybe it'd be good if I'm hoping Erwin does it, but prefaces the like kind of the flow. Yeah. So that people have an expectation tomorrow is going to kind of be the practical and tonight is theological grounding. Yeah. I hope because then they won't just jump to questions like what should we do as a church? Like, because we're going to have to keep repeating ourselves like, you know, we'll cover that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, actually, I, uh, after listening to the whole message, it definitely does cover justice, but I would say it's still largely in the vein of like being a loving community. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh. Man, I haven't presided in ages. It's hard. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard like I, that was my first re time recording doing it oh yeah 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 it's like a, you've got these little like you know four or five minutes to just like get it all in there especially the announcements yeah dude there were so many announcements actually did I uh, I forgot to mention to you I, um, Megan had me add an alpha care request she told me Yeah, it was real short. It's just, yeah. if, if you want to drive, so that was it. But dude, we had a lot of announcements and then it, it was kind of redundant because I was like, it's in the link below. It's in the link below. It's I in know. the link below with each thing. Maybe we should just preface our announcements by saying everything we're going to talk about, you can find in the link below <laughs> instead of saying it after yeah, every that's, single that's Yeah. Or at the end, say, oh, okay. everything I just said, you can find in the box below the video. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to use the restroom real quick. Hello. Hey. All right.
Hey guys. Can you guys hear me? Yep, we got you. Probably should have gotten um, Irwin's cell phone number. I haven't. Do you want me to text him? Yeah, just see if he's able to jump on so we can pray for him. Yeah. I don't know if you guys can, you probably can't tell, but I slept on these glasses one night and cracked them completely in half right here. That's why I've been wearing, I don't know if you guys noticed, I've been wearing my darker frame ones, but I super glued it today and then sharpied it in. So it worked. <laughs> I super glued it, vice gripped it and sharpied it. Can't tell. Yeah. I got these in Korea. I was so upset when I broke them because they're like feather light, mm. really light on the face. Yeah, you can't tell at all from the video. <laughs> I was going to do the tape, like, like uh, Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> you good. Dude, I, I guess uh, I'm wondering if he forgot. I just texted him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, Trev. I was thinking maybe uh, to help preface the like the questions to kind of set expectation. Maybe as you introduce him, you could say tonight he's going to really delve into the biblical foundations of being a beautiful community, biblical and theological foundations, and that'll kind of help people not be amped up about like I have all these like what should our church do kinds of questions. You know what I'm saying? So maybe if we could set expectation, that would help. You know, I don't want people to come away thinking, oh, we're going to learn all these practical things tonight and then be disappointed. So I think if we set up the expectation saying we're setting a biblical theological foundation tonight, tomorrow's session is going to go heavy on practical. But, you know, we'll be doing we'll also be doing Q&A to interact with him tonight. Uh huh. Did we get confirmation from any of the deeks and elders? I, want, I wonder who's actually going to get on. Not sure. Is there, is there a Dodgers game? Isaac's going to be conflicted. <laughs> Eight o'clock. Game three, big one. It's a pivotal game. 
<laughs> He's going to put a cardboard cutout of himself <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> I'll be right back. I gotta try and cycle my internet here. Something's not loading up for me for my intro for him, so I'll be right back. Uh oh. Okay. Do any of you guys have a like a desk lamp? So like when you do zoom at night, like there's no shadows. Yeah. I'm using it right now. Yeah. I should get one. These like shadows. Oh, that's better. Ooh, that looks pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah. That yo, know, you look much better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like upward. Like my room here is well lit up here, but for some reason when I'm facing my curtains, it's just so dark. But let's move over there. I mean not that I'm speaking. <laughs> but uh, like maybe for a large group. Oh, that looks better. Looks like daytime. Where? You. It looks oh, like yeah, daytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So your office is surprisingly bright, right? I've got a lamp over here that does some work for me. Yeah. You know, I can, I, I can recommend you the um the lamp that I use. There's like, there's like whiter lights and like a yellower light. So there's like a spectrum. So like you can kind of get a good mm. tone, I guess. Yeah, there's like these lamps on uh, Amazon. It's like specific for YouTubers. Circular <laughs> ones. TikTokers <laughs> to like yeah. get a good, illuminate um, their faces. Irwin's actually got one. Oh yeah, yeah. He showed it to us, Justin. I'm using the one you gave at the staff, Pollyanna, with the different settings. Yeah, the the LED one. Yeah, yeah. I have one too. Nice. My camera keeps disconnecting for some reason. I hope that's not too distracting. Might get a seat cushion. It's going to be a while tonight. Just kind of. Message from Erwin saying he'll be on in a couple minutes.
Oh, Han Lu chatted. Uh oh. Or is he a panelist? I think attendees can uh, message the panelists. Oh, remember we said let's turn off the let's try to turn off the chat and just leave the Q and A. Yeah, I don't think there's actually a place to turn off the chat. Oh uh, no. You can turn off the Q and A. I was just looking at that. You can turn off the okay. Q and A. You can't turn off the chat. Sorry, Han. <laughs> we were we wanted to keep the chat just to the panelists, but. No, well, maybe. Actually, I can turn off the chat. Do you want me to turn it off? Yeah, I think so. Hey. Hey. How are you? Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. How are your brothers doing? All, All right. right. See you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Glad to be here. I don't think you've met um, a lot of our staff. So, um, Ryan, have you? Yeah. We Zoomed with yeah. uh, Pastor Irwin. Mm -hmm. Travis, yeah. obviously, you know. So, Dan, uh, he is, he had mm -hmm. been our college pastor for many years. Now he's transitioned over to being a um, campus pastor over in our other campus in Center City. Justin, he is. Um, now he's assumed the role of college pastor. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, we are expecting a few more panelists, some of our possibly REs and deacon, some of the diaconate okay. members to just give you some faces to preach to because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a weird experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, so, yeah, and we, I'll, have, I'll have screen sharing capability. Yeah, you have it right now. And we should probably just pray for you real quick. Uh, the people who will be tuning in here will be able to hear us. So. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Dwight, you well, want to pray for us? Sure. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this weekend that we could set apart to, um, Lord, in a focused way, uh, hear from our brother, uh, Dr. Irwin Entz, and to consider uh, what it means to be uh, the community of Christ the community that you shed your blood for, you died to purchase, and that you have promised to form and shape. Uh, and mm -hmm. so God, would you indeed uh, use our brother this evening and tomorrow, uh, allow him as he opens up your word and as he shares your truth, we pray that you would use him um, in a powerful way to help shape the culture of our congregation, especially in a time where the forces of the culture around us are so strong where there are so many voices and so many other competing ideologies and philosophies and worldviews to draw from, um, some of which in common grace, certainly there's some wisdom to be learned even from unbelievers, but much of it, Lord, uh, not being in line with the truth of your gospel. So would you bless this evening to that end to root and ground our people in the truth that we would not be carried away by every wind and wave of teaching, mm -hmm but being well-grounded and deeply rooted in the gospel, that it would be out of that healthy root and firm foundation um, that we could grow into the community that you desire. And so we give you this evening, we pray uh, again that you would uh, use all the words, thoughts, uh, things that you have, have taught and impressed upon, upon the heart of our brother, um, that it would deeply inform and transform 
our people for their good and for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And uh, for so Travis is going to kick us off in about five minutes here and uh, introduce Erwin to everybody. Um, Travis, I don't know if you or Erwin, you, you can say that the Q&A is open from the beginning. So people can, you know, start populating the questions in advance. We found that that tends to help get the conversation going once we get to Q&A. Um, if you let them ask questions from the beginning throughout. So anything That's else? Good. Anything else from you, Erwin, questions-wise, or? Yeah, and so, that, I mean, I'm fine with that as long, you know, so so you or maybe, try, who's going to be kind of monitoring the, the I will questions? Be. Ryan will be. Yeah. Yeah, and then when we get to the Q&A time, I'll, I'll kind of moderate the Q&A time as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then, if, if possible, are you able to, a shift or adjust your seat a little bit. You have two strong glares coming straight down. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If not, that's okay. Uh, hold on, it, it looks... Yeah, yeah. There's the lights and let's see. If I do this now, that's still Oh, there gonna... you go. Is that better? As you still have those glares. Right? Much but better. I just... Okay. It's like brighter. Moses coming down from the mountain with a water. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The glory. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Have you um, done one of these a conference like this virtually? Yeah, we've done this mix. Yes, <laughs> this is the life now, right? So yeah, we've got to get uh, adjusted to trying to do some things virtually um, yeah. and figure out the best way to kind of. Um, communicate the same content, keep people engaged and the like, you know? Yes. So, well, um, Lord willing, I, I, I was quickly going to say, well, Lord willing, we, we want to get you up here in person if possible someday. Um, love to. Love to treat you to a good Philadelphia meal. Um, yes. <laughs> I'd love to be up there uh, at some point, I, you know, now. You know, I am a native New Yorker guy, so I like, you know, Philly cheesesteaks. But I like <laughs> Philly cheese. Oh, we'll take you to the best ones. <laughs> Not the cheap ones. <laughs> You're going to talk trash on Philly. We might just take you to Wawa and let you sit a minute. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Wawa. <laughs> Hey, look, we got plenty of them down here, Baltimore way and into Maryland. So, right, they got them in Florida too. I didn't know Wawa was right. All I knew was Seven <laughs> Eleven. I get down this, this there, like Wawa. Everybody's like Wawa. This good Wawa. What is that? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> our our um, office administrator just joined Megan. She's down there. Hello, Megan. Hi, I'm currently arguing with my husband because he thinks he can't be on the panelist video. And I'm like, I don't think that matters. It's just to give <laughs> Pastor Irwin somebody to look at. Yeah, he could be on. I could be on. Yeah, yeah. See? All right. I am actually eating one of the best Philly foods right now. I'm having sods. So if you come up, we will get you sods. Um, hey. But yeah, it's delicious. This is Viola. Hey. 
Hello, Viola. And baby giraffe is waiting for his mom to come and pull Okay, him. go away. <laughs> Got it. The, the important things. The important you know? things. Baby yes. giraffe needs mom, you know? Yes. <laughs> All right. So I think what I'm going to do now is just have everybody mute themselves other than Travis. And I'm going to pull up, make sure Travis is spotlighted. All right, well, good evening, Renewal. Uh, I'm Travis, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to spend some uh, time with you this evening. We're gonna spend time uh, tonight, uh, tomorrow afternoon, and then Sunday during our worship service, uh, focusing on how we can become a more united and diverse church uh, that's a good neighbor to our city. That's part of the goal of our City Missions Conference, which is uh, what our conference is all about this year. And we have the privilege uh, of having a, a friend and a brother, uh, Reverend Dr. Erwin Entz, uh, to lead us this weekend. He's the Executive Director yeah. for the Institute of Cross-Cultural Mission, uh, which is a ministry of uh, the church that I came out of, Grace DC, down in Washington DC. Uh, and that Ministry seeks to equip churches and organizations with the competence and confidence to welcome others as Christ welcomes us. Uh, Erwin is a, is a good brother. He is a wise, thoughtful, and very genuine guy. I've really benefited uh, from hearing him teach and preach. I've benefited just from being around him. Uh, he's someone that makes others better and looks for ways to bring out the best in us, which I think is so valuable at a time like this. And that's really why we've asked him to come and speak with us at our City Missions Conference this year, because we are addressing things that are so controversial in our time, that are so difficult. We're gonna be addressing issues of race and faith this weekend. And this is part of our ongoing effort to grow along these lines. And it's work that we've been doing even before these issues re-emerged in the national spotlight this spring and summer, which is not in any way to pat ourselves uh, on the back, but to say that we believe these issues are important whether society is paying attention or not, and we're going to continue to press into them whether they are popular or unpopular because we are convinced that they are biblical. And so like Martin Luther said in the Reformation almost 500 years ago, here we stand. Uh, we cannot do otherwise. Uh, and so tonight, uh, we have just the person to help us wade more deeply and faithfully into these important biblical issues. Uh, we're going to start this evening with some biblical and theological foundations for our understanding of this, these issues that will help us get into uh, the practicals more effectively tomorrow. Uh, we will have some Q&A at the end of tonight and more tomorrow, but you can ask questions as you have them and we'll take those as best we can at the end. Uh, but that's all I have. I'm, I'm delighted to welcome now 
uh, our friend and brother, uh, Erwin. Erwin? Thank you, Travis. Uh, good evening to you all. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you tonight here uh, from my home office in Washington, D.C. Would love to uh, be able to visit you in Philly one of these, uh, one of these days. And uh, for our time tonight, as, as Travis said, we, you know, we're focused on laying some biblical and theological groundwork for um, cultivating what I call beautiful community. And so we've got two parts uh, for our time tonight. What I'm going to do is share my screen with you. Um, I've got a uh, presentation some slides to go through. Uh, I also have some. Um, I also have some audio, video stuff that, uh, Lord willing, will work uh, well <laughs> over Zoom, and my Wi-Fi will uh, will accommodate me um, for this. And so, this is right. We're we're titling this the the beautiful community, and uh, really. Uh, this is the title of the, uh, the book that I just published with InterVarsity Press. And, uh, and I want to uh, kind of begin this way with uh, sharing with you my core, my core conviction. This is a core conviction that has driven me in ministry, um, uh, really even before I was in the pastorate. I, it's something that I took shape and form when I was in seminary, and I won't give you the whole background for my story as to how this became something that I became passionate about, but it's codified this way that the ministry of reconciliation as demonstrated in the local church by the gathering of uh, people from diverse backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, that this is the natural outworking of a rich covenantal theological commitment. And what I mean by that is when I talk about beautiful community, I'm talking about the ministry of reconciliation, that uh, we are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ and brought into reconciliation with one another. And, um, and it is without question um, God's design and intent to unite peoples from every tribe and tongue and language and nation under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that the church is to be a model and a demonstration of that for the world to see. So if we believe what the scriptures say, we will be pressing into this um, as a fundamental aspect of what it means to be the people of God. And so we're gonna do, I, I wanna share a couple of scripture passages with you. Uh, I haven't really gotten into the first part, but I, I, this is setting the groundwork because we're going to talk about three things, that God is beautiful community. That's going to be this first hour. The second hour tonight is going to be uh, focus on the fact that we are destined for beautiful community. And then tomorrow we'll get into some of the more practical things on cultivating beautiful community. What does it look like for us to press into these things practically? But let's just start with, I want to start with a couple of passages of scripture here. Uh, 
in the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, um, the Apostle Paul setting out really the tone for this letter that he's writing to the church in Ephesus in these uh, verses 3 to 10, which in the Greek text is one long run-on sentence that he's offering this praise to God. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as, uh, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And very often in our circles, Presbyterian and Reformed church circles, passages like this are, 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 are pointed to, to engage the, the, the wonderful uh, doctrine of election, <laughs> predestination, predestination. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blame us in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. But Paul is going somewhere. He continues, he says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Here it is, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now that Christ has come, he has, he has lived, he has uh, been crucified, buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, we see the revelation of God's plan, right? his, his purpose that he set forth in Jesus Christ. What is it to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. And this sets the tone for the rest of this letter. He's going to tell them um, in chapter two, passages that we might be familiar with on salvation, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it's a gift of God so that no one may boast. Passages, he goes on further to talk about how Christ in his body has broken down the dividing wall of hostility to make one new humanity, one new man from the two. In other words, Jew and Gentile together in worshiping community as family, brothers and sisters, right? Is the, his, he started going there in, chap, in chapter one in this passage to say, you, Ephesian church, you're evidence to the world that God's plan has been revealed to unite everything in Jesus Christ. Your unity in your diversity is demonstration to the world that God's plan is at work, has been revealed. One more passage uh, from Paul again, Colossians chapter one. He does something similar uh, in, starting in verse 15, this ancient uh, hymn of the church. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be first. He might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, here it is again, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Different word that he used in Ephesians that was translated as unite or sum up, but it's the same concept. God's plan to reconcile all things in Jesus Christ, in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Colossians, you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In his body of flesh, that's the church, <laughs> that's his body, right? And so follow me, right? Paul is going to say later in this letter in Colossians chapter 3, He's going to say here in the church, Colossians, verse 11 of chapter 3, there isn't Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and all. You, diverse peoples in the church in Colossa, are reconciled together. This is God's purpose and plan. This is what he is doing. So let me, now I'm ready to start. <laughs> Uh, start here. I want to root this in a fundamental truth that God himself is beautiful community. Uh, that the God that we worship is beautiful. And more particularly, he's beautiful community. And that begs a question, right? Doesn't it? Begs a question. Question is, what is beauty? What do we mean when we talk about beauty? Now, why do I have a picture of camels here um, on this screen? Well, it's because there was two years ago, almost three years ago, three years now, because we're at the end of 2020, but the beginning of 2018, there was a scandal in the uh, camel beauty pageant in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, several camels were disqualified from the pageant. They were disqualified because they had received Botox injections and, uh, and plastic surgery to make them appear more attractive. Uh, there is a, there's a book that they follow the standards of camel beauty that the judges use for this uh, particular pageant. And here's the deal, you know, um, the, the camels, right, they didn't inject themselves, right? You know, uh, obviously their owners found a veterinarian to do that work for them. And, the, and, and millions of dollars are at stake in these pageants, right? And so you and I, right, are not likely to come across any camel beauty pageants, right? Um, but we do know, we do know what it's like to commodify beauty, right? We do know what it's like to parade people on a stage in, in, in front of judges and an audience and make assessments of their aesthetic appearance, 
and assign a value to it and call that a beauty pageant, right? We know what that's like, right? So what is beauty? How should we define it or describe it? Is it simply subjective? Is it, you know, you know it when you see it. Uh, is it simply that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? When in the church we sing this song, this hymn of the church, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upwards to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Right? What do we mean? What are we singing about? I want to suggest to you that there are some ways that uh, we can get to an understanding of, of beauty with um, these three facets that I want to share with you. Three facets, three Ps um, that are facets of beauty, perfection, proportion, and pleasure. Beauty right, has these facets, one which is perfection. Uh, in his book, Creator Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Art of Becoming Human, Steve Guthrie writes, to hope for the kingdom of God in its fullness is to hope for beauty. The psalmist says in Psalm 50 and verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Perfection, but perfection as an asset of beauty, there's a mystery there. And here's what I mean. So in one sense, perfection is not what you see when you pick up Glamour magazine or, you know, men's fitness, right? There's always somebody, you know, that's pretty aesthetically, you know, put together, right? Um, and there, there's some glistening skin, right? Um, and, and there's also some Photoshopping that's been done to make sure any bumps or <laughs> imperfections have been taken away, right? But this aspect of perfection is not the, uh, the airbrush sheen of the fashion magazine. The mystery in when we talk about perfection as an aspect of beauty is that it, it ha it's a perfection that can accommodate scars. And what, what I mean by that is simply this, right? Um, we sing another hymn about our Lord Jesus Christ in one of those lines that says, those wounds, yet visible above are in beauty glorified. The risen Christ, our savior, is the epitome of beauty and glory, yet he still bars the, bears the mark of human sin on his body. He still has, those scars have been transformed, right? Um, and, uh, and brought into the new life, right? So there's mystery in the perfection and transcendent, transcendency in the perfection. Then there's proportion. The proportion speaks of wholeness, speaks of shalom. It speaks of things being the way they ought to be, right? Everything fitting the way it ought to fit. The new creation will be beautiful because there'll be harmony and right relationship between God and humanity, among humanity, and among everything that God has made. Beauty, Dana Gioia says, is our, is our connection to the essential harmony of creation. And this reality of proportion, of wholeness, harmony, shalom, right ordering, 
is true of God first. And then the third P is pleasure. Simply put, beauty delights. Beauty delights. There's a delight in beauty. Uh, St. Augustine said, if I were to ask first whether things are beautiful because they give pleasure or give pleasure because they are beautiful, I have no doubt that I'll be given the answer that they give pleasure because they are beautiful. Right. What uniquely characterizes the quality of beauty is its effect of evoking pleasure or delight in the act of perceiving it. And this pleasure, here's the thing. This is why it's not simply like the beauty pageant. This pleasure is a decentered delight in another. This pleasure of beauty is not about my, I'm not at the center of my concerns in the pleasure. It's seen in places like the Psalms where David says, one thing have I, have I desired that I would seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple all the days of my life. David's envisioning it's a pleasure and a delight, but not in himself, it's in the Lord. <laughs> Right? And the Lord's beauty, he's at the center of the pleasure, right? Um, and so, uh, as Steve Guthrie says, rather than drawing the beautiful object into the orbit of my concerns, I'm the one drawn in. The work captures rather than serves my interests. Right? Perfection, proportion, and pleasure. And I love this statement from uh, Dana Gioia, who um, this was earlier this year in a, um, a, a little video on first things that he did called Why Beauty Matters. He says, without beauty, there's no practical way to change the world. No universal means of communication and inspiration will suffice. No equally powerful way for humanity to know and love what is good and true. Um, this is a reality, perfection, proportion, and pleasure. And we can even say that the Bible starts with a story of beauty. The story of creation of the world is a story of beauty. What do I mean? The problem statement in Genesis 1 is stated in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. <laughs> And the, and the creation account is that of bringing order out of chaos, forming and filling on parallel days. The light is formed on day one. On its parallel day, day four, the light is filled with the sun and the moon and the stars. The day two, the firmament is formed, the sky and the seas. Day five, it's filled with inhabitants. Day Three, the dry land is formed and the vegetation is formed. It's the land is filled on day six with land animals and the crown of creation, humanity. There is, there is this bringing order out of chaos, the reality of shalom, things being as they ought to be in perfection as God would have it. And there's delight in the creation account. 
we know there's delight because the, at the end of each day, it says the Lord saw what he had made and saw that it was good. That, that language, it was good, is not simply about its utility. It is, it is the Lord actually delighting in what he has made, <laughs> delighting in the goodness of what he has made. Right. So the, the creation account is an account of beauty. And so I want to share with you one other thing. There's another facet um, as we think about beauty and we think about God in particular that runs through um, that runs through each of those other three facets of beauty, and that's simplicity. What do I mean by this? You know, right? Uh, you may, we know this in a sense, right? Today, um, if you just Google, you can get all kinds of counsel on if you want to be happy, right? You got to simplify your life, right? You got to, if you want to be happy, you just, you got to declutter your house. You got to declutter your mind. You got to declutter your relationship. You just got, you got to simplify and you'll be more, you'll be a happier person. Well, when it comes to God, here's the thing, right? He is simple in this sense. He has no decluttering to do. He has no, there's all that he is, is necessary for him to be who he is. <laughs> and his simplicity is seen profoundly in this confession of faith given to us in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4, uh, called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right. Um, this is not just a statement that there is but one God. And it's true, it is that. But the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is a, is a statement about the simplicity of God, about the unity of God. Um, that he's indivisible. <laughs> um, and this is going to matter when we talk about uh, humanity in, in a bit. So there's a particular challenge we have, right, in beauty and simplicity. And it's, uh, this is the first kind of audio clip I want to share with you. This poem that uh, my son, my second born son is a musician. Uh, several years ago, he did this, uh, his project called I Heard God Laughing when he was in college. Um, and this is his first, uh, the first song on this project. He calls the Beloved's Intro. And, uh, and I want you to listen to, and you see the words up, but listen to this poem he wrote about beauty and simplicity. The sky tonight has a certain elegance to her. The second great light has provided a unique kind of brightness, one through which seems to have God intentionally reaching out to his lovers. As I look up, clouds suspended in perfect bliss part, and the light appears to have centered on me. The beauty of God's masterpiece had me paralyzed. It's almost as if the beloved was saying, stop and look. There was so much beauty to be found in simplicity. I thought for a moment and replied, my dear friend, as always, you are right. 
There is enough beauty in this one night to keep me infatuated until I meet you face to face. I could feel God crack a smile. For a while longer, I pondered. Then I proceeded to ask, why can't life be this beautiful? Why can't life be this simple? He simply responded, Nabil, never cease to drown yourself in my love. Yeah, this one's for the beloved. The beloved. The beloved. Wish I could play the whole song for you. But it's streaming on all the media. iTunes, SoundCloud, <laughs> Spotify. <laughs> um, right, but he's, right, he's, I love what he says because he's grasping um, at, at the reality of beauty and simplicity and the tension we have in our own lives. Why can't life be this beautiful? Why can't life be this simple? As I meditate about who God is, right? and what he has created and the disconnect between that reality and what I experience in my own life. When I tell you this, God's beauty is most profoundly seen. His beauty and simplicity is most profoundly seen in his communal life as father, son, and Holy spirit. Uh, theologian Herman Bavink put it this way. He said, the fact is that these attributes of love and knowledge, as well as all the other attributes, only come alive and become real as a, as a result of the Trinity. Only by the Trinity do we begin to understand that God, as he is in himself, hence also apart from the world, is the independent, eternal, omniscient, and all-benevolent one, love, holiness, and glory. The Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life eternal beauty. And I'm going to, hold on a second, I'm going to skip a slide for, for time's sake uh, and go to this one. <laughs> um, because here's, here's the reality, here's what he says. In God too, there's unity and diversity, diversity and unity. Indeed, this order and, this, and harmony is present in God absolutely. <laughs> He says, in the case of creature, creatures, us, we only see a faint analogy of it. When you look at creatures, your uh, unity exists only by attraction, by the will and the disposition of the will. It's a moral unity that's fragile and unstable. In other words, right, as people, typically, our unity is around being with the people we want to be with. We are, we are attracted to we're drawn to for whatever reason. It's not that attraction is bad or sinful as, a, as an idea, right? Um, like, right, I'm attracted to my wife. That's a good thing, right? And we want to be unified. So, so that's good. But he, let me give you this example, right? You think about uh, a sports team. Um, you know, right, if the Lakers just won the NBA championship, right? And, and anytime you interview championship teams, when they've won their championship, uh, they've reached the pinnacle, the players will be interviewed and they'll talk about how unified they were. 
They'll talk about how they overcame obstacles because they set their mind toward a goal and they, had, and they, they knew that if they stayed together and kept focus on the goal, they could overcome the obstacles and they can make it to the end. They all say some version of that, right? Well, what's gonna happen next season? Does that unity carry over? No, right? You have to manufacture it all over again. It, that unity is fragile and unstable. <laughs> and there's no guarantee you'll be able to get it back, right? You'll have different players, right? The whole bit. This is what it is with us. This is not the case with God. And then he says, as where there's a more profound physical unity, there's no independence. And the unity swallows up the diversity. But in God, both are present. Absolute unity as well as absolute diversity. He said, this results in the most perfect kind of community, a community of the same beings. At the same time, it results in the most perfect diversity a diversity of divine persons. The God we worship is unity and diversity. He is beautiful community. God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life. Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. And we see this played out for us in the pages of scripture, in places like uh, the gospel accounts in Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, for example, right? Jesus is baptized and said, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. So the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Father, son, and Holy Spirit unified in purpose, <laughs> in Peter's first epistle, he's writing to a church that's suffering, that's suffering persecution. He's going to say to them in, this, in that letter of 1 Peter, he's, he wants them to persevere and endure through the trials. And he's going to say things to them like, listen, don't think uh, it's strange right? When you, in, when you encounter, when the fiery trial comes upon you, don't act as, as if something strange is happening to you. He says, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. But he doesn't start the letter um, calling them to endure and persevere. He starts the letter pointing them to their triune God. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, may grace and, and for sprinkling with, with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Pointing their gaze toward their beautiful God <laughs> who is for them and every, they are not unseen by him. They are in this position according to the foreknowledge of the Father for in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. All of God for all of them. Here's my last slide and then we'll, we'll take a break and do some Q&A here. The beauty and glory of our triune God is seen 
in the mutual glorification of his communal life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's another theologian, I like John Frame, puts it this way, says the concurrence of the three persons of the Trinity in all that they do is a profound indication of their unity. There's no conflict in the Trinity. The three persons are perfectly agreed on what they should do and how their plan should be executed. They support one another. They assist one another. They promote one another's purposes. This intra-Trinitarian deference, this disposability of each to the others may be called mutual glorification. This unity has all the marks of beauty, perfection, wholeness, proportion, harmony, and pleasure, delight. Our God is beautiful community. All right, we'll stop there and, uh, and move into our, uh, our Q&A time. Great. Thank you, Erwin. I'm gonna remove your spotlight. So um, we're gonna move into a time of Q&A and um, I'm gonna encourage you all to uh, enter in some Q&A questions uh, in the Q&A box. You can, uh, you know, if you prefer to stay anonymous, you can stay anonymous in that as well. And uh, I can present them uh, to Erwin. And also we have uh, on um, this, um, uh, call, um, we have uh, our deacons and elders and staff, some of our staff are uh, on this as well. Um, so uh, I'm going to invite you all to, um, if you have a question for Erwin, just to unmute yourself and uh, I'll get the screen over to you so that um, you can ask uh, your question audibly to Erwin. Um, but I have one to, to kind of get us going, Erwin. Um, so um, you started out by uh, the, the passage in Ephesians and talking about how our unity in the church is a demonstration of who God is to the onlooking world. I guess I just was going to ask, what do you believe we are currently, we'll say churches in the West, are currently telling the onlooking world about God? Mm. Yeah. Um... You know, it's always the case that the church is um, in process on journey, <laughs> you know. Um, but there are some things that I think become more dominant messaging-wise to the watching world in certain times and places in uh in history and so we'll limit it to right now maybe even the united states that the church in many respects has become more of a um reflection of the partisan political um tribalization in in this country uh we can there you know a variety of reasons for that but but in part in part it is whether you're talking about the majority white evangelical church 
or uh, many aspects of the majority minority church, we've foolishly believed that the political process is, um, is the way to most faithfully bear witness to righteousness and justice. I'm not saying we should ignore the political process, but I'm saying, so, so that messaging like, oh, this church, if you're, you know, this church is more red than blue. This church is more blue than red, right? Um, and, and that's almost, right, true across the board, you can experience that. Um, and, and that's a, right, that's a, that's an idolatrous messaging <laughs> that we give to the world. As, a, as opposed to living into our, the truth of our union and unity in Christ right. in practical ways. Because the fact is, it's already true. Right. It's already true. The question is, are we going to live into it? So, yeah, I think that that's, that's, you know, especially these days, much more messaging about partisan political commitments. Um, so, yeah. We have a question from uh, someone uh, who's attending and um, I'll just ask the question. And if you're gonna get into this later, feel free to, you know, um, answer as much as you'd like now, uh, but they're asking about, so is, is there a place for the, the mono-ethnic churches and, you know, the, the black church or the Asian church, or should all churches be multi-ethnic uh, to kind of reflect the beauty of, of the Trinity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. I, I think that, um, and, and the answer is, is complex. Um, in, in one sense, yes. Now, you know, you look historically as to why we have some of these divisions and some of these divisions are in place because of, of, of the lack of faithfulness in, particularly in, we talk about the majority culture, white church in America, right? That maintained the divides and bought into segregation and things like that. And God's gonna have his witness no matter what. So, now, here's the thing. I say, yes, there's a place for um, mono-ethnic churches or particularly, um, I would even say majority-minority churches because cultural affinity is a necessity, is not a necessity, cultural affinity is a strong, um, not just a draw, but it, it, it but it is a reflection of the image of God. We'll get into that a little later as well. Um, but here's the thing. No one gets a pass at, at the command, Jesus' command to love our neighbors. Nobody, there's no out clause. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. There's no out clause on loving our neighbor, and there's no, um, there's no, uh, there's no 
out on, or there's no discrimination clause on saying who is and who isn't a neighbor. So even if I'm in a monoethnic church, a majority minority church, there's, if I have, if I got neighbors that God has called me to love in Jesus name, right? I don't get to say, mm, you're not like us. So uh, we don't want to do any neighbor love with you. This is just the reality. It's not to say that the church is local congregation might not change substantively to say, oh, it becomes all of a sudden, you know, 50% Asian, 50% Anglo or whatever. Um, but who are our neighbors that the Lord has called us to love and how do, how do we extend love to them, right? That's the, and, 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 and letting the Lord lead in that. Right. So that's how I that's how I think through things like the, you know. Last thing I'll say, bec part of the reason th these, um, particularly minority majority minority churches, are places that have been so formative for things like um, affirming the dignity and value of worth of people who from that ethnic background of finding a place of, of cultural affinity when your life experience outside of that ecclesial community might be having to um, shift to more white cultural norms. And so you need a place of cultural comfort. So that's why it's com complex, but it still doesn't get beyond the reality of having to love our neighbor. We don't just exist for ourselves. Questions from our other uh, panelists, deacons, elders, staff. Um, I that was just so rich. Um, thank you for sharing, Brother Irwin. Um, I think I have the privilege of having met you earlier down in D.C. together when we were together with a group of pastors, and I I remember being so moved. Um, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot too much here, but I, I remember being so moved by your own story. And you kind of alluded to it in the very beginning, and certainly I know we're, we're a little tight on time, but um, if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing what did draw you towards cross-cultural work and how that even relates to what you just described of, of seeing the beauty within the Godhead himself um, and the unity and the diversity there, and maybe how that relates to your own story of how you arrived at this point to be the executive director of a cross-cultural <laughs> institute. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Pastor. I, so, you know, I grew up. Um, I grew up in a Christian home in Brooklyn, New York. I began to have, uh, and that church I grew up in was a majority Black uh, Methodist church uh, in downtown Brooklyn. And um, high school years, I was, you know, less inclined toward church. Uh, more interested in what was going on with the New York football giants on Sunday afternoons than what was happening with Jesus. So right, that became kind of a, just a passive moving away from the faith. But when I got to college, I went to college in New York City as well, to City University of New uh, City College, part of the City University up in Harlem to study electrical engineering. 
And it was there that I was shaped and formed into um, a, a black nationalistic worldview, an Afrocentric worldview, um, joined a, uh, became part of an Afrocentric movement, um, part of an organization on campus called the Sons of Africa. And that was an experience where I became um, pretty openly hostile toward Christianity. I began to view it as the white man's religion, um, as something that had been used uh, to, um, to oppress, enslave, uh, and dehumanize people of African descent. Uh, and so I really didn't want any part of the church. Um, and it wasn't until we moved to the Washington DC area, my wife and I did in uh, January of 1995, it was for work. Uh, she got a job in Northern Virginia. I got a job in engineering in Maryland. And um, when that happened, we started to attend a historic African-American Baptist church in Washington, D.C. Not because we were interested in the church or Christians. We didn't have any friends or know anyone in the area. My wife had some family members who went to that church and they kept inviting us. And so we said, I will right, we'll go. And we started doing the young adult Bible study on Wednesday nights that would alternate homes, right? And it was through that process that the Lord really began to pierce both my heart and my wife's heart. Um, and we joined that church um, and started following hard after Jesus. And here's the thing, that's now, so now I'm reading the scriptures, right, with, the, the spiritual lenses, <laughs> spirit-formed lenses, I should say, right? And believing what I'm reading and seeing language about reconciliation, seeing language about family, brothers, and this new language that the apostle, that the scriptures use, not just the apostle Paul, but the scriptures use about, you know, brothers and family, that familiar language. And it's, it's, it's a diverse people's ethnically and culturally, and I, and I respond and I think to myself, well, wait a second, I'm seeing this, but I go to church and literally everybody's black, right? The church over there, everybody's white, everybody's Asian. I'm looking at this in scripture, and, but I'm not seeing it lived out in any practical way in the, in the local church. And so for me, that's what the Lord, I call it Lord giving me a divine dissatisfaction with the mononess of most local churches and having to press into it. Uh, and it just comes out of my own story, right? Um, that, um, that, he, that, and I just started pressing in that direction even before I understood that's what was going on. So I gave you my core conviction. That's formed like through seminary and stuff and my study of, right, of theology. Um, but the, the dissatisfaction was there before, before then. So. All right, we've got another question um, from the audience. And um, this one is, uh, you know, about the tendency of some churches to maybe identify with one person of the Trinity. So like, uh, you know, we're a church that's all about Jesus or we're a church that's spirit led. Um, is there some danger 
for churches to only kind of focus on one person of the Trinity or focus more on one person of the Trinity? You know, um, so one, right, God is undivided, right? That's what, right, the point of his simplicity. Um, and he is completely um, um, united in every way, shape, form, beyond our imagining. We, like, we can't even fathom the unity of God. We can't approach it, right, in its depths and its riches. And so, um, and so there is, I, I think there's a danger in this to, to, the danger is here, is prioritizing one, one aspect of who God is over another aspect of who God is. Like, um, and what we ought to engage in is finding where we might be out of balance, <laughs> right? Where we might not be living like we really believe the hope that we have the Holy Spirit <laughs> right? at work, right? Um, when, for example, when Paul in Ephesians 1, later in that chapter, he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, right? That they would know, he says, the great power that's at work in you, right? That, that power right, um, that God exhibited when he raised Christ from the dead. Paul wants him to say, look, the because he said, you've been given the spirit as a down payment of your inheritance to inquire full possession of it. The power of the spirit is at work in you. He's like, I want you to know, be enlightened, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened to know that the power of God is at work in you, right? And so we might, so what we ought to say is, where are we out of balance? <laughs> and what, how we're believing and living and following God. Thanks, Erwin. That's helpful. All right, everybody. We're going to take a um, about a 10-minute break here. Um, so bathrooms are down the hall on your left. Um, so uh, go make sure you find that. And uh, we'll, we'll gather back together at um, 8.35 uh, to hear Erwin's uh, second keynote uh, for tonight. So stretch your legs and take a break, and we'll meet back back at uh, 8.35. All right, be back.
All right, everybody, let's uh, gather back together. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and, and kick it over uh, to Pastor Irwin. All right. Here we go, part two. Um, so let me share screen again, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. All right, so focus on the first hour was that God is beautiful community. As I mentioned, this, um, this segment is focused on the fact that we're designed or destined, <laughs> we're designed and destined for beautiful community. Uh, and now it might it might be obvious, you know, uh, given where I started with um, uh, Ephesians one and Colossians one about God's plan to unite all things in Jesus Christ. Uh, but there's more to say, um, particularly as it relates to if if God is beautiful community, what does it say about us as his image. Uh, Elaine Scarry has a book titled On Beauty and Being Just. It's a small book. And she makes this comment in this statement in her opening pages of her book. The beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. And she's, she's talking about beautiful things in the created world, beautiful objects. But this is how I think even of God's beauty. I envision the overflow of God's beauty in the creation of humanity. Uh, the Lord, he didn't need to make us. We didn't come into being because, because God lacked someone with whom to share his love or because he needed our worship. Um, he, right, out of love <laughs> made us at, a, at an overflow of his beauty. And that there are a few things we're going to talk about in, uh, in this section. We're going to talk about royal dignity, unity and diversity, fracture and ghettoization, and reconciliation and reunion. All right. So, right, first thing, right, I started in Genesis 1 as a story of beauty, right? The creation account is a story of beauty. And in that very passage uh, of scripture or chapter of scripture, we hear the first words the Bible tells us about humanity. Out of God's own mouth, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and he continues so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them what does this declaration of image mean it means at least a couple of things that i want to focus on as it relates to humanity one is individual dignity, 
or as I said a little bit ago, a royal dignity. Humanity has a unique, unique place in God's created world as the crown of the creation. We're creatures of incomparable value and dignity. Richard Pratt has a book titled Designed for Dignity. And early in that book, he says, has, says to his readers, I want you to put down my book and the next person you come across, I want you to shake his or her hand and greet them with these words, hello, your majesty, to emphasize the fact that when you encounter another human being, you're encountering royalty, uh, kings and queens. Humanity has incomparable value and dignity, right, from the womb to the tomb. Nona Verna Harrison in her book, God's Many Splendid I Image, describes it this way. She says in Genesis 1.26, the word dominion, when the Lord says, let them have dominion, the birds of the air, the fishes of the sea, and so on, that speaks of a royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. Royalty involves dignity and splendor and a legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being. Because everyone is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means to be human, people are fundamentally equal, regardless of the differences in wealth, education, and social status. And then she says, right, the church preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it now. That the fundamental equality of every human being was a countercultural message that the church proclaimed in the ancient world and still proclaims today. Understand, Genesis was given first to the people of Israel who had been delivered out of bondage in Egypt. Lord sent Moses and Moses gives them the Torah, the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. And um, they had been enslaved in Egypt because they weren't Egyptian. <laughs> in the ancient Near Eastern world, the, the one who was the image of the God was the king on the throne. And so you were accorded dignity and value by your affiliation to the king, uh, being a citizen of that country, of that nation. If you were not of that people, you could be devalued and enslaved easily. That is precisely what happened to the Israelites, Exodus chapter two, Pharaoh says, the. We've got a Hebrew problem with these Hebrews. They're not like us. We've got to deal shrewdly with them. And, and so this reality of the fundamental equality of every person, because God says every person is made in the image of God, in his image, right, was a countercultural message in the ancient world. And we think it's uh, it's just a presumed thing that everybody should understand today, but it's still countercultural. <laughs> and part of the tragedy, of course, 
is the church hasn't always preached this countercultural message and proclaimed it and lived it. Right. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965 in a message he gave titled The American Dream in Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia said that the whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, not that they have substantial unity with God, but every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth, it gives him dignity and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. He says one day we'll learn that. We'll know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. And this, this inherent and unimaginable dignity is part of the reason that God forbids idolatry. It's part of the reason that he forbids us giving our worship and devotion to anything else in all creation. And so actually the second commandment is of a particular relevance to the issue of human dignity. Here's why, right? God gives them the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Right? Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any or any likeness of anything as in the heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth of those who love me and who keep my commandments. This commandment, it doesn't just guard God's dignity, it guards humanity's dignity. Why? Because human beings are the only legitimate images of God in creation. That's what God has declared. And so to give our worship to any other created thing is a dehumanizing act. It is actually to fundamentally worship something less than ourselves. Um, no, we don't worship one another, <laughs> right? But we, right? But we, there's, there's certainly nothing else in all the creation that has that imprint, the image of God. And so idolatry actually, right, it, it prevents, it hinders hum, human beings, it hinders us from doing what we were designed to do, reflect the glory of God to the world as his image. Right. Um, and so this is why you see the prophets railing against idolatry in the ancient Near Eastern world. There was no separation between the carved image and the presence of the God. So Isaiah will say in places like, or will say in places like Isaiah 44 and following and say, you, you know, what do y'all, y'all take a block of wood and have it used to cook your food and warm yourself by the fire and the other half you make into your God. Like who does that, right? There's a reality of, the immense dignity. So God wants us to even guard the dignity of humanity. Um, 
And so he, I want you, here's a, I want to play a clip for you. Um, this is now, now Sterling Brown um, is an actor, African-American actor, uh, most recently um, being awarded here for the role he plays in the show, This Is Us. Um, I confess, I, I, uh, I don't watch the show, not because I have necessarily anything against it, but because like the people I know who watch the show, like they're always crying, you know? And so I'm like, do I wanna make the emotional investment to watch this show, <laughs> right? Anyway, uh, Golden Globes a couple of years ago, he won an award um, for uh, best actor. I believe he was the first African-American Listen to this is a two minute clip. Hopefully the audio is good and the video is good uh, of his ex uh, acceptance speech. It's really just a minute and a half. Listen to what he says as it relates to dignity. Right? Oprah. Don't want to run out of time. So let me thank my wife. Brian Michelle Bethe, I love you so much. Thank you for supporting me through this whole thing. To my kids, Andrew and Amari, Daddy will see you. I will take you to school in the morning. I promise. Um, I want to thank my cast, which is absolutely amazing. And we take turns leading and supporting one another. I love each and every one of you. To uh, my network, NBC, to Bob and Jennifer, to, uh, to Fox, to Gary, to Dana. But also, I want to thank Dan Fogelman. Now, Dan Fogelman, throughout the majority of my career, I have benefited from colorblind casting, which means, you know, like, hey, let's throw a brother in this role, right? It's always really cool. But Dan Fogelman, you wrote a role for a black man, like that could only be played by a black man. And so what I appreciate so much about this thing is that I'm being seen for who I am and being appreciated for who I am. And it makes it that much more difficult to dismiss me or dismiss anybody who looks like me. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Hollywood Film Press. So you hear what he says? He said, throughout the majority of my career, so he's thanking Dan Fogelman, right? The director, producer. Uh, he says, I benefited from colorblind casting, right? That's the idea, like I benefited, oh, wait a second, we got this film, this TV show, this movie, and we realized we don't really have any diversity in this thing. We need to find some. Oh, let's put a black guy in there. Oh, yeah. And he said, like, I've gotten jobs from that, right? I've I've made, I've made a career, right? Um, but there's a difference writing a role that has somebody like me in mind, that, that, that promotes my sense of dignity, embodied dignity within my ethnicity, my ethnic identity, right? Because he said it makes it that much more difficult to dismiss me or dismiss people who look like me, because I'm used to also being dismissed, right? The afterthought, right? And so individual dignity, royal dignity, is a, a fundamental facet of what it means for humanity to be the image of God. 
And the second aspect that I want to hone in on follows it. And it's this, that if God's beauty is seen in his Trinitarian life, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. While each person has a measurable value and dignity because we are God's image, the most significant way we bear that image is in community. The most significant way we bear the image is in community. Herman Bavink again in, says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. I would say it's also much too rich to be fully realized in a single culture or ethnic group, however, whatever gifts you find. He says so profoundly, only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. Do you want to have in your mind's eye a full vision and picture of what it means for humanity to be the image of God. Bobby says, you have to have glory in view. You have to have the end of the story in view. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? Before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and power and wisdom and might, right? Because you've redeemed us from every tribe and tongue and made us a kingdom of priests before our God. Right. You've got to have that in view. That's where humanity is heading and where humanity was heading, um, even if there weren't any fall into sin. Here's our problem, though. Our problem is fracture and ghettoization. What I mean is, by ghettoization, is um, division along lines of Mm, some, some might say affiliation, either forced affiliation or preferred affiliation. Uh, so I don't mean, you know, urban poor when I say ghetto. I mean our groups that we are associated with, that we believe, whether we say it consciously or not, but we act like often this is a sum total of what it means to be human. Right? And it has its roots in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. So this picture in front of you is, uh, this is the image of, uh, is a picture of a ziggurat mountain uh, from ancient Babylonian days. Um, this, it would have had a, a, a crown kind of on the top of it, or, um, but it's since worn away. But you can get a sense of this you see the stairs in the middle and the stairs on the sides, um, that this is approaches what the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 would have looked like. It, when you think about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, don't think about some little, little minor construction project. Right? It's humanity using all of our technological know-how and ingenuity right, to create this um, marvel, 
but in direct rebellion against God. Right? You have the recreation account in Genesis 6 through 9. Because of sin, the, the flood waters come from the skies. Chaos again, like Genesis 1 2. <laughs> the chaos is back, right? And it's a recreation account. And God saves Noah and his family. And God reissues the command in Genesis 9 to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And in Genesis 10, a new section in the book starts and you have the table of nations, the descendants of the sons of Noah and where they are on the face of the earth. And in the start of that section, it seems like humanity was obedient to God's command. But Genesis 11 tells the story of how Genesis 10 took place. It says, Genesis 11, 1, the whole earth had one language and spoke the same words. Right? God had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Right? And, you, and, you, and it says in Genesis 11, and they migrated east. And they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And then humanity spoke some words. So let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its height extending to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves, humanity said, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of all the earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no, thank you. Right? We want to be God. And God comes down in judgment, sees the tower. God says, this is only the beginning of what they will be able to do. In other words, the Lord says, if, if I let humanity continue unabated in its rebellion and rejection, their unity is in their sinful rebellion. If I let this continue, there's no bottom to the depth with which they will sink. So God confuses our language, creates ghetto living, right? They cannot understand one another, it says. And they stopped building the city and the tower. And then it says in verse nine of Genesis 11, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And so now that's the last time humanity was one big happy family. And we were one big happy family in our rebellion against God. And, and now these ghettos <laughs> that don't understand one another are not naturally drawn to one another to appreciate the facets and aspects of the image of God that are seen in different cultures. No, we want uh, our people to be at the top. <laughs> we want our people, we, right? Do you really want to know what it's like to be human? You just need to become one of us, like us. We're the sum total of it. And so following Genesis 11 and the judgment there, there was by consequence going to be dehumanization, oppression, injustice in individuals and systems of groups against other groups. Dehumanization was going to follow. And so this is our challenge, right? Uh, Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebrock is a professor, art professor at Covenant College. And she, um, 
she gave the commencement address in 2018 um, at Covenant College. And I love hearing her speak. She, she always uses um, art in, uh, to, to drive home certain points in her, art, in her messages. And in that speech she gave in uh, the commencement address in 2018, she used this piece of art, um, a 2007 piece of art from the Tate Modern Museum in Britain. The artist's name is Doris Salcedo, and the, and the title of the uh, artwork is Shibboleth. Um, it's a reference to Judges chapter 12 in the Bible. And Doris Salcedo's contribution to the, um, to the, of art to the museum in 2007 was this is not a painting. She literally cracked the floor of the museum open. Now, my understanding is they filled it in, but you could still see the outline. She opened up the floor of the museum, put a crack in it. And she titled it Shibboleth in a reference to Judges 12, where the Gileadites, they sifted out their enemies. Right? They told them, they had them say the word Shibboleth. Right? Um, and it sounds different in different dialects. And if you didn't say it with the right dialect, it became a death sentence. Right? And so, so it means, right, it, it, it's a reference to like a custom or a phrase or a use of language that acts as a test of belonging to a particular group. Right? Right? It's an exclusionary tool. And so, so Doris Salcedo cracked open the floor uh, of the museum in an effort to bring to the surface the hidden ways in which we police our boundaries. The hidden ways and the impossible test that we give to others in order to maintain our own sense of security and comfort in our groups. And this is what Dr. Whitebrock said uh, during that message. She said, sometimes we believe that dignity is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group's suffering or accounting of history, then there's less available for us. But this is foolish, she says. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it. So our challenge is this, right? We've got reinforced behaviors and ideas that create cross-cultural barriers because of our ghettoization. And we're, and we're less willing to grant dignity to different groups and their accounting of life and history and their own sufferings. But here's the thing, we are destined to, for beautiful community. How do I know? What is God's response to Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel and the ghettoization of humanity? It's Genesis chapter 12 in the call of Abraham. God calls Abraham and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And here it is. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
This is a promise of reunion and reconciliation and, and unity in the seed of Abraham. Understand, he's talking about all the families of the earth that I just had to disperse in Genesis chapter 11, in judgment. It says, that's why I brought out Genesis eleven nine. 9, says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. We can't manufacture our reconciliation. The only thing we can do in unity, apart from God, is sin. And so if, re, if beautiful communion, community is going to happen, it's going to have to be by God's doing it. And it's just, there's a pattern in Genesis, and I'll move on, but because I need to wrap this section up too. Every time you see judgment because of sin, you see God follow it with a covenantal promise. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, right? you get the first gospel, right? that the seed of the woman is going to deal a death blow to the head of the seed of the serpent. You get the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. You get covenant promise in Genesis 9. You get Genesis 11, same pattern. Judgment because of sin and covenant promise. This one is for all, right? It's taking shape that I'm going to bring these families back together um, in your seed. We are destined for beautiful community. And, and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself. John chapter 17. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer. This is the end of his discourse as he's preparing for his crucifixion in the upper room from John chapter 13 to 17. And at the end, the disciples are brought in on this prayer he offers to the Father. He starts off the chapter saying, Father, I've completed the work that you've given me to do. Now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. And then he prays for his disciples, those who followed him in his earthly ministry. And then he gets to verse 20 and he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian, that's you. That's me. That's us. Those who will come to believe in him through the apostolic word. He says, my prayer, Father, is that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Out of the mouth of Jesus in this prayer, the most powerful gospel witness to the world that he's real is the unity of his people. And he's not pulling this idea of oneness out of thin air. Jesus has the Shema on his mind. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is saying, Father, the unity that I share with you in our oneness, make it such that those who follow me, 
image me in that way, image us in that way, to, as a reflection to the world, as a testimony to the world that I'm real. And this is unity in diversity. Understand, Paul is only riffing off of Jesus when he starts in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 about, you know, uh, reconciling all things in Jesus. Peter Lightheart, I got uh, two more slides and then I'm done. Peter Lightheart, three years ago, published a book titled The End of Protestantism. And by that, he meant the telos, the goal of Protestantism. Um, uh, and his book was written as, you know, commemoration of the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, making the point that the reformers weren't trying to start another branch of the church, but call the church back to faithfulness to the word of God. And he said in an interview, he said, the good news is the good news of the unity of the human race. And the church is a proleptic sign of that eschatological reality. It is a sign of the unity of the human race that will one day be perfectly achieved. It is also a sign of a cosmic unity that all things are summed up in Christ. And the church is to be the visible communion of human beings that anticipates that ultimate union of all things in Christ. It is a living sign, a community where that unity is already experienced in some degree. And he says, this is in some respects, the whole point of redemptive history that God is going to knit back the human race in his son. And when the church fails to be that proleptic reality of the eschatological union of all things in Christ, then we are very deeply failing in the calling that we've been given. To be a proleptic reality, when I first heard it, I was like, I don't even know what proleptic means. What does that mean? It sounds strong, but let me look that up, right? For something to be proleptic, the imagery you should have in your mind is of a forward-facing mirror. Something that's to be proleptic, you look at it and you get an image of what's coming in the future. You get an image of, of where things are going. So he's saying we should look at the church and get an image or a reflection of where God is taking humanity. And when we fail, he says, at that, we are very deeply failing in the calling that we've been given. Last slide. What the fall destroyed was union and unity with God and each other. Reunion is the story of scripture. These words we find in the Bible, renewed, reconciled, united are the reversal of the fractures and the divides and the breaks and the partitions of life in this world and before God that was and is so desperately needed. We are truly stamped from the beginning by God for beautiful community, for unity and union for wholeness and for shalom. All right. All right, thanks, Pastor Irwin. We are gonna enter into about 20 more minutes. We've got until 9.30 of Q&A. Uh, and again, um, Q&A box is open and I'll invite uh, the panelists, elders, deacon staff to jump in as well. But I'll, I'll get us started with um, this question. So this is our 
city mission conference, obviously. And, um, you know, we do this once every other year. Uh, in the other years, we do our overseas missions conference. Um, but when we think about ministry in a diverse city like Philadelphia, uh, what do you see as the, the benefits for us of getting out of our renewal ghetto? Hmm. So tell me what you mean by renewal ghetto before I... Well, I just think well, I'm fairly new at the church, but all churches have a tendency to hang out with each other. Uh, and to not necessarily look outward and to think about mm -hmm. um, how are we reaching out beyond our walls to others. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, you know, I think we all in our churches build our own, put your church name in front of it, ghetto. Um, so yes. I'm, I'm just wondering, <laughs> okay. you know, for, in a place like Philadelphia, what's, what's the importance of stepping outside of our own ghettos? Yeah, I mean, I think that if we have this commitment and think that we want to be faithful to pursuing life as God's people in a way that resonates with God's heart and his kingdom purpose, we will be seeking to love our neighbors. That we know that, right, renewal doesn't just exist for the people in renewal, right? Um, and who, are, who are our neighbors in our communities? Right, in our community, where we gather as a church, or that parish, if you will, in our neighborhoods. So how do we, getting out of that kind of quote unquote ghetto is pursuing ways to love and serve our neighbors, right? And, and it, takes, it takes all kinds of forms. The importance of it is, is just simply that we don't exist for ourselves and to maintain our own sense of comfort and security. We don't, we, we, don't make, we don't exist just to promote our own needs and desires. We, we exist, right, yes, to grow in faithfulness to Jesus Christ and that includes loving neighbors. Who are our neighbors? So finding ways to say, what are the inroads into genuine love Right, not as some, um, you know, bait and switch to get folk into the church, but say, what are the real needs here in this community? What are the real ways in which we can serve here in a, in a way that demonstrates love to our neighbors? Who are those neighbors? And I, and, and I don't simply mean like mercy ministry, just, yes, right, where it's a, dynamic of we're, we're coming in to help you, right? Um, but understanding what are the things, what are the dynamics here in this, in this community? What are, the, what are the ways in which we can be engaged in the things that matter, in the things that reflect the truth of the, the Imago Dei, the truth of the image of God? Um, what are the things in this community that reflect that truth that we can be engaged in. And some, so, so sometimes that's visual and creative arts. So, you know, I, an example that I love is of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. They have the Harrison Center for the Arts. It's literally attached to the building of the church. It is an art 
studio with residential artists from the community who are not all Christian, right? Um, but the board, whole, the board, everybody on the board of the center are Christians and, and some part of the session of the church and the like, right? To say, this is one way, like, there's beauty, there's a reflection of the image of God in the, in the, in the creative arts and paintings and, right, and sculptures and artworks. And we want to promote that beauty. So anyway, finding those ways to engage and get out of the ghetto in that way and serve, right? Um, so, yeah. Great, thanks. So we have a, a couple questions from the participants. Um, one is just uh, on the idea of ghettoization of humanity, um, just some clarification. Like, do you have some specific examples of how that ghettoization plays out? There are all kinds of examples. So think about the groups to which we belong and the way we get our sense of value and preference from those groups. We've got racial ghettos, ethnic and cultural ghettos, socioeconomic ghettos, academic ghettos, right? That these are my people. <laughs> Who are my people when you think about that? <laughs> Who are my people, right? And in and, and what ways, do we, do we um, live into a preference that doesn't appreciate and value the beauty in others, groups, whatever they may be, that, that puts ourselves at a different level? Right. Um, and there are, you know, the, the most certainly, right, the, the stark kinds of examples are, right, American slavery, the create, literally the fabrication and creation of whiteness as a ghetto, right, for the sake of preferring um, certain people over others, right, um, to little societies, right, um, that we are affiliated with. You know? um, and it's not to say, because we can't, we're not, I'm not saying we should break out of any sense of affiliation with any cultural or ethnic group, right? No, we're, we're made to be in and a part of culture. My point is the ways in which we express preference in a way that is, um, dehumanizing of others and not valuing others. Right? That's what I mean. Uh, another question from the attendees. Um, you were talking about sort of manufactured unity. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of a false unity. Um, what's, what, what's kind of some key differentiators between a manufactured false unity versus a kind of God-destined unity in, in the church? So let me answer this a couple of ways. A manufactured unity that is not necessarily false is the example I gave of a sports team, right? Um, it's, they've manufactured it, right? For a purpose, for a period of time, that is temporal, it's coming to an end, right? It's manufactured. Right? 
um, in a church or ecclesial sense, you can have my wife. I got this from her. She's like, you know, she said, we don't just want different hues in the pews, right? We want, we want real cross-cultural life and love. We're not just about saying, oh, look, we've made it. Look, we got some sprinkles of different folks here, you know, because we did something. Right. Um, spirit formed. And, and I'll say this as a second add-on, like very often that ties into just thinking about percentages. Oh, if we get this percentage of diversity, then we're really a diverse church, right? And I'm not against statistics, but I'm like, when we have, we'll talk about cultivating more tomorrow, but when we have a trust that this is God's heart and we are praying for the Lord to do this work in, through, and among us for his glory, and we are open to how that, go, how that comes to be on God's terms. That's more spirit raw. And let me give you my, as an example, when we planted our church, City of Hope Presbyterian Church uh, in Columbia, Maryland, is an intentionally multi-ethnic cross-cultural church from the beginning. This was our heart. And I had something in mind out of my own experience. I was like, yes, you know, I was in a place of very diverse, you know, planned community, Howard County, Columbia, Maryland. And I had this idea in mind of what the diversity was going to look like and found out that I actually didn't have control over that. Um, most of most of the black people who um, began attending the church were actually second generation West African immigrants. Because of a ministry, one of my elders who was a high school teacher did a Bible study at his school and there were a lot of um, Afri West African immigrant students in the high school started coming to the Bible study one of them started coming to the church and all of a sudden now, now I'm right now we're dealing with, Oh, I'm learning. Like I'm, I'm African American, but I'm not African. So I'm learning different cultural dynamics, right? That these brothers and sisters bring into the beauty of, of our church. That like, that's not how I was trying, how I was envisioning it, but I just said, okay, well, Lord, this is this is you, <laughs> you know. Um, we got to go with this flow, right? Um, as opposed to some way of trying to kind of manufacture it, you know. And 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 being okay with being patient to watch how the Lord answers the prayer, answers our prayers. So. So. Um got a, a spicy question that we were uh, discussing uh, beforehand. I like spicy. I like spicy. Um, so, Ooh, <laughs> so could you explain uh, how maybe we should view critical race theory uh, in light of biblical truth and some of the things that you're talking about? Yeah, that is spicy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, this is, here's the thing. 
Um, and I'm still learning the ins and outs of critical race theory uh, only because it's now become the thing that everybody says is gonna destroy the church in the United States. Um, so I will say this, one, um, I affirm all truth is God's truth. And part of the beauty of the, and the robust reality of our theological commitment, right? Um, particularly when we're in reformed and Presbyterian church circles like the PCA, is that we have a robust grasp of common grace of that truth, that all truth is God's truth. And that even, right, image bearers who don't know the Lord can give insights into truth. <laughs> Not saving truth, but truth. And so there are things within critical race theory, right, which is a subset of critical theory right, that can be helpful ways of diagnosing the problems around the issues of race, specifically race and the law, because that's what it comes out of, right? Looking at, looking at the law. Now, it's being applied in, in all kinds of other ways now, but it comes out of this graphs of, or, or these questions of how is it that the United States of America that says um, we strive and promote for, uh, and promote equal justice under the law, right? liberty and justice for all, can have, have had laws that literally militate against that. And are those is, 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 the, is that kind of racism and racialized preference so inherently embedded in the American legal system that we'll never get away from it? There's, these, are, these are questions, right? Now, so I don't see critical race theory kind of as the boogeyman in the sense as long as I understand that I'm, it's a eat the meat, spit out the bones and say, are there things that I can or we can say are helpful diagnoses of the issues, um, but knowing that one, I don't even think it's trying to, but it can't provide this ultimate solutions because that's only found in Christ. And, and so, and so, the, the other thing I will say that's disheartening is that it's used by many as an excuse not to talk about issues of systemic injustice, racism, oppression, inequities, right? To, the minute you start speaking out about those things, Right, you, oh, you, are you going down the line of cultural Marxism, critical race theory? And very often, like, like what is that? I never even heard of it. I'm just talking about what the Bible says about justice and sin. And, you know, and so, and so, yes, it's important to kind of learn, 
now, particularly if you're a leader, because it's getting just thrown about um, so much. Um, and it's, again, it's not as though there aren't problems <laughs> with, with right? System of thought that it doesn't spring from a robust biblical world view and perspective. Thanks for that. Anybody in the panel have any last minute questions? And if not, that's okay. Yeah, I've got a question for you, Erwin, and think about helping us apply some of the paradigms that you use with us tonight. Uh, I think we're seeing a very polarized time, right, where there are some people, like you said, they're very afraid that they're going to be asked to share a dignity they can't spare. Uh, and so there's an exclusionary side of folks, and there are folks that are kind of all in on diversity but really don't want to connect that at all to God or have God speak to what diversity should look like. Uh, how would you use, uh, you know, some of the paradigm that you shared with us tonight to draw those folks who don't want to be told what to do with their diversity, to just let it be a good in itself, to draw them back uh, to a grounding? And how would you also draw folks in who are afraid that diversity is going to take something from them? Would you help us think about applying those paradigms? Sure. Yeah. Um, on the on one hand, if we're specifically talking about people who claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, then if if people are not wanting to connect their heart for diversity to what God's word says. I'm going to try to engage them with God's word to say the, the reason this matters is not because you think it's cool or be think that it's important in the culture. Because here's the thing, you, you'll never um, persevere because it's really too hard. If it's not because you're going to, you're going to you are going to exhibit a preference along the way sure. even if you say i want to embrace diversity right you um i you know if i'm preached for y'all on preaching for y'all on sunday sermon is already recorded by the way i apologize because i said uh, i think i said renewal city church <laughs> instead of Renewal Presbyterian Church. It was a city mission. But I was at City Reform Church in Pittsburgh last week. So I had all, you know, anyway. Uh, but my sermon passage is Exodus chapter 23. Right. Um, and in verses one through nine, in the middle of those passages, that this is God working out their application of the law for the, these liberated people. And he says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, right, that's been lost, right, um, you shall surely, you shan't leave, you shall surely return it to him. If you come across your, the, the ox or donkey of somebody who hates you and find that it's 
laying under its burden. It can't, you won't, you don't leave him. You help him, right? This is Exodus 23, Old Testament version of what Jesus says. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your, your enemy, right? Um, this is God saying, this is what my people do. Who are, your, who are the people you despise? Who, who are the people that you don't want to be in diversity with? Those are the ones you should be pursuing in diversity, right? right? You're, if you're not rooting it in the word of God, you're not going to persevere. It's just going to, it will be superficial because it's only going to be by attraction. <laughs> Who are the diverse people I'm attracted to? Right? Um, and then on the other hand, for um, the people um, who are afraid of losing something. And these are conversations I have, particularly, we did a, uh, an event called a clergy story table in January before COVID when we could gather together. And a diverse group of, of clergy at a dinner gathering where our topic was race and justice. And so I was the host facilitator and asking them questions. Uh, and then people were invited, they could kind of sit around and listen in on the conversation, right? And, um, and two of the African-American pastors who are here in the DC area and who pastor um, large African majority African-American churches said, you know, like I see, I, I know what the Bible says in um, Revelation five and seven, I, I know, right? But I don't know if I can really trust white people that they're gonna really be truthful and say like like my our experience is when white Christians come in to these contexts, they're 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 ready to kind of take over, even just by default. And so uh, the the black church experience has been so instrumental in affirming the dignity of black people in America because the culture has said the opposite that we might lose we don't want to lose that right and so in those kinds of contexts you have to hear and listen and not try to bludgeon people <laughs> with the scriptures and try to be patient there too, and say, okay, well, there, now there might be a longer trajectory, right, in embracing this, but how can we help you move along this trajectory? What might that look like? And not try to impose a certain vision on people to have to accept, right? Allow people to be in process and be on a journey just like we're in process. We didn't arrive at it overnight, right? So that's what I'd say. All right, well, that's gonna conclude our time. I'm gonna ask Pastor Dwight to jump on here and to close our evening out in prayer. Yeah, so again, we just wanna thank uh, Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince, uh to share with us uh, just such rich theological uh, foundations and grounding, which are so important you know, I know a lot of our folks have lots of practical questions 
and, and that's important. Um, ortho, uh, orthodox, good orthodoxy always leads to good orthopraxy, but you got to have the good orthodoxy first, um, as, as you just stated, um, unless it's coming out of a rich biblical gospel-centered framework, um, we won't persevere. We won't prioritize it as much as we should. Um, and so it was so important that we get this grounding um, to sustain us for the long haul. And, um, and in addition, um, that as much as there are other truths out there and other movements and organizations that might value diversity, and we certainly believe all truth is God's truth, um, I think the danger of not having a solid theological foundation for why we value unity in diversity can quickly lead to adopting the entirety of worldviews that may be inconsistent with, again, Christ and, and Christ's priorities and, and lead us off track in that way. So thank you so much, uh, Brother Irwin, for giving us such a strong uh, foundation um, off of which we can launch tomorrow uh, as we tackle the practicalities now um the idea of uh, the title of tomorrow's talk being uh, cultivating beautiful community so we're looking forward to that that'll start at two o'clock uh it's still not too late to sign up so if you want to sign up yourself or invite a friend please uh, do so so the first hour will be again uh pastor Entz speaking and then we'd like to leave the the rest of the time for um Q&A and interactions. So very much looking forward to parsing out in more practicalities. What does it look like for, for renewal in particular uh, to begin to move towards uh, being a beautiful community in practice? So come armed with questions, uh, come armed, ready to uh, exchange ideas and thoughts. And, uh, and so having said all that, let me pray for us and conclude this evening. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you are beautiful. And I pray uh, that you would continue to capture us with your beauty, capture us with a sense of just how beautiful you are. Draw us more deeply into you, the beauty of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the unity and diversity we see in you. Draw us into that beauty more and more that we would be captivated by it in such a way that we prioritize it as your people, that we would prioritize reflecting that same unity and diversity as you intend us to. And that as a result of being so drawn into your beauty, that it would empower us and move us and stir us to draw others in, others who are not like us, even others who might oppose us or we might be considered natural enemies in this world and in our culture, Lord, that we would pursue people unlike us, just as you have pursued us while we were still enemies. So thank you, Jesus, again, for this night. Thank you for giving us a, a deeper grasp of why unity and diversity matters, why it needs to be pursued. And Lord, we look forward to tomorrow hearing more about how that can be pursued. And so give us good rest that we might come uh, sharp, um, attentive, uh, willing, with open hearts, and with hands and feet ready to respond to your call upon our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.
Thank night. you, Dr. Ince. All right. Good night. Wow.